a, I was going to say very short, but a short annual meeting after the service today. Uh, we are required to have one according to our bylaws for the state, and, and some churches are trying to do them virtually, and we thought it would just be easier to just do a very short meeting right after the church uh, service. And so uh, for those of you who want to stay for that, uh, you're invited. We will keep the kids outside uh, after Sunday school until the meeting's over. So if you're if you're not staying and your kids are out there, you can pick them up out there. Uh, you know, and that'll work that way. Um, daylight saving time on March 14th. So uh, just putting that out to you. And uh, then we have uh, an an addition to our property improvement, if you want to call it that. Uh, we have a gate that has been installed. It's an eight-foot scissor gate that closes off the porch. Um, it's not my first choice of things to do, but we have a very serious problem with homeless people finding our porch extremely attractive. And... Uh, they, we've had complaints from the neighbors, uh, the police have been called, a number of situations, and they continue to still come back. There's been no way to regulate it. And so uh, we have put up a gate, and the gate will be up at nighttime. Uh, we'll try to be sure that it's open during the day so that it doesn't look so uh, closed off. And for those of you who need access to the building, uh, you still have the back door over here. Uh, with, uh, you know, our regular key works there, but the gate has got two padlocks and it's actually keyed to the door, uh, key as well. So if you want to come in through the front and unlock all of that, you can. Uh, you just have to lock it all back up when you leave. So easier to use the side door. And, uh, so, uh, you can tell, uh, some of you might not have even noticed it was, it's there, uh, if you came up through the front simply because it really does Pull away and uh, get out of the way very, very nicely. So, uh, anyway, I just wanted to make sure you understood that those things were there. And if you drive by and you see it closed off, that's what's the reason. And uh, I hope uh, that uh, we're hoping that that will take care of the the overall problem of dealing with uh, people sleeping on the porch and. And stuff like that. So I don't think there's anything else to say about that. Um, I think I've covered the things. Uh, we'll dismiss the children, uh, seven, uh, four years old through seven. We'll be going to the building uh, uh, over here uh, after, uh, just before we preach. Uh, and the... Um, Older, eight, eight through junior high, I guess we'd put it, uh, are going to go to the uh, the long building, the old classroom building. And uh, we're going to try to reestablish our children's ministry. And so uh, you'll be dismissed in just a few minutes. Any other announcements that need to be made? Okay, I have something for, for the kids to think about. Uh does anybody know what four score? What is it? Four score and eleven. What that means in in actual years? Four score. You know, Abraham Lincoln. You know, 
you know, three score, you know, in, in ten, so four score and eleven. Does anybody know what four score and eleven is? Way in the back over there. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it adds up to 420, so that would be 80, and, and 11 is 91, and that's how old Phil Scriver is today. And I'm, I'm sure we should sing happy birthday to him, just to embarrass him if we can. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Phil. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> I heard out there and many more. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Well, congratulations, Phil. Um, I don't see any other uh, announcements that need to be made, so uh, let's go ahead and dismiss the kids and uh, their teachers. BJ? Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Glad to have some of the kiddos back. Yes. Okay, so if you've been following along, we've been doing our Bible reading plan through the year. Hopefully you've joined up with us. Uh, we've been following the Bible Project's Bible reading plan. If you haven't, that's okay. Um, but we encourage you to start. Um, you could even pick up on this date. And what we've been doing is we've been going through and preaching a sermon that either relates to what we have just read or will relate to something that's coming very soon. So this has been a really fun thing to do. And that by the end of the year, you know, to kind of have preached through the whole Bible in a sense and given us a great sense of its storyline and in the good news about Jesus and what he has for the world. So, if you would, open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. Father, we do just thank you so much for this time that we can gather together as your people and we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us understanding in what some have called the strange new world of the Bible, that you would help us to see it for what it is, give us some ears to hear, 
Help us to understand what you have to say in, in the Old Testament. We ask that uh, you would give us an injection of courage and that that would work against the virus of unbelief in our hearts. So do that today. Help us to believe your promises and all that you have to say in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read uh, the first part of Joshua here and then we're going to bounce all around. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given it to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is God's Word. So notice the repetition, strength and courage. Be strong, be courageous over and over and over again. Fearlessness, the reality of God's witness, His presence will be with Joshua. Notice the call to meditate on the law of God, that it would not depart from their mouth. That if they did what God had said, things would go well and that they would have great success. So we see these themes interplay throughout this whole first part, and it continues in Joshua, and it also continued before. But I want to set the stage, because again, what we have here is we have a major death in Israel. We have the death of Moses. We have a new leader who is installed, Joshua, and that he is going to be taking the people of Israel into the land. And what I want to do is just try to gather a bunch of threads as we go into this. Because you'll notice that as you read Joshua, you get into things like conquest and things like the removal of people and the removal of nations. And it brings up all kinds of questions and all kinds of questions that all different types of people ask about the Bible, whether you're a Christian or even an atheist. So what I want to try to do is give us some of the reasons for this as we look at what happens in this book and as we look at what 
has gone before. Because again, we're doing this whole Bible in a year. It's important to get the whole picture. So first, what we need to recognize is that in Genesis 1, chapter 1, God said that He is the Creator. That He made heavens and earth. So God is Creator. God is Sovereign. He is the Owner of everything. That's what the first verse tells us. There is a God. It's an assumption. It doesn't argue for it. God is. God made everything. It's all His. And He installed human beings that He made in His image to be image bearers like Him as His vice regents, His authority in the earth. And of course, they fell. And they were banished. Because of their sin, they were removed from the land, so to speak. They were removed from the garden, the paradise of God, the presence of God. They were taken out. And then all hell breaks loose. And you read about everything that happens in their family and as it just continues on. We see in Genesis chapter 12, we see that this promise to be in this land right now that we've just started to read in our plan was given way back in the beginning. In Genesis 12, it was a promise that was made to Abraham. Genesis 12, 5-7, and we're going to do some bouncing around. Genesis 12, 5-7. What happens in Genesis 12 is he is called by God that he is going to be blessed, this man Abraham. And what it says in verse 5, it says, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So where is, Mo, or excuse me, where is Abraham at? He is in Canaan. There are other people there, Canaanites. What does God say? To your descendants, to your offspring, to your people, this land is going to be your gift. I am going to give it to you. So we see already that there is a promise, that God has made a promise to his people. God has made a promise to Abraham to give him the land. And this is hundreds of years before Joshua happens. So we, we really have to see that promise and gift, God's plan, God's purpose. We also see very soon again, back in Genesis, remember where we're at right now, Genesis 15, later, God says this to Abraham when God gives his covenant to him. Abraham goes down in the deep sleep and God says this in Genesis 15:12. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in your good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God makes a promise. You're going to die. People are going to come after you. They're going to be afflicted. That nation is going to be judged. God's going to bring a deliverer. And then they're going to come back here where you're at. They're going to come back to Canaan and that's where the land they will be in. 
And then he throws in this little line, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The sin of the Amorites. We're going to talk about more about Amorites. And i got to say, I'm going to be reading all kinds of weird names that I don't know um, exactly how to say them. So you can mock me later if you know. Um, but we have this reality of God's promise, God's gift, and then this reality of God's judgment. That there is a time that is coming for these peoples, Amorites in Canaan, that will be judged. But it's not yet. Their sin's going to increase. God is merciful. He's patient. It's going to increase and one day their iniquity will be complete and they will be removed from the land. So again, we really need to see that this story was promised way before we are at in this place here in Joshua. So who are the Canaanites? Who are the Canaanites? You ever notice as you're reading in the Old Testament, there's a lot of lineage. There's a ton of it. You, we always think it's kind of the boring parts. It is so, so important. Lineage is massive in the Bible. Offspring, seed, things like, things like that. What we learn about the Canaanites is that the Canaanites come from Ham. Who is Ham? Ham is one of the sons of Noah. In Genesis chapter 10, we get to read about them. Because again, we see these peoples always popping up. So we've got to know, where did all this start? What's... How do we put all this together? Because we keep reading all these funny names. Where did this come from? In Genesis 10, we see the nations that descended from Noah. And so we have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or however you say his name. So Ham is covered in verses 6 through verses 20. And Ham has Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Those are Ham's kids. Ham is the one who was cursed earlier with Noah. You read that in chapter 9. Noah got drunk in his tent and Ham comes in and basically shames his father. There's all kinds of questions about exactly what was going on there. Very unseemly things likely. And he is cursed and his whole offspring from then on begins to follow false gods. So when you read in verse 6 that Ham has Canaan, we hear these kinds of names. Ham has Cush. Cush's dad is Nimrod. Who's Nimrod? He's this mighty hunter, the strong kind of king of a kingdom that is Babel. Another name all through Genesis. We have Egypt. Well, what does that bring up? Well, that brings up Egypt. Egyptians. That Egypt's dad is a name I really can't say. Kasluhim. And from him comes the Philistines. Again, all from Ham. Then we have Canaan who is the dad of the Amorites. Verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and it goes on with a bunch of ites. But, so we have the sin and the iniquity of the Amorites, Amorites coming from this particular line. What else do we hear about Amorites? They're big. Amos, this is later, but Amos says this about the Amorites. Amos is a prophet that we don't go to a whole lot, and we should a whole lot more, because it has a lot to say about what's going on today, but we're not going to do that. Um, Amos chapter 2, verse 9. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, right? Is that right? No, Hosea. Joel, there we go. Amos chapter 2, verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. This is God speaking. I destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, 
and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. It kind of goes on to talk about how we brought him out of the land of Egypt and things like that. So we have Amorites that are big. They are giants. And this is when things get weird. The Nephilim, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Again, we need to see this because all of these peoples and all of these names come out about who God is giving His promise to Abraham, His people, He's giving the land to them, and all these people are supposed to be driven out. Amorites and many, many others. So, Genesis 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Now, there's a lot of debate about this particular passage. Um, but this ends up being a key theme because we see things like Nephilim, things like Amorites, things like the sons of Anak, the Anakim come up all through. You've probably ran into this as you've been reading. They're coming up all through Deuteronomy. They're in Numbers. They're in Joshua. So, something has happened here that has increased further Corruption. There's a few different viewpoints. I lean more toward the viewpoint that sons of God and daughters of men are that it was supernatural beings that came and mixed with women and a lineage was spawned called the Nephilim. There's different people handle this in different ways. Some just think it's purely human beings that are through like the line of, um, of, of Cain, that there's kind of the Seth line from Adam and Eve's kids. And then there's the Canaan. There's Cain and all of his offspring and these various different people that turn against God. But what we see here is that something appears to be happening. And one of the reasons that God's judgment may be on the giants is because the giants were from the sons of God and the daughters of men. And one of the purposes of the conquest, and I hope we see this as we continue to go this morning, is that we have God's judgment on sinful rebellion of idolatry. And we're going to pick this up a ton. That God's judgment on sinful rebellion of idolatry, that is rebellion against God and His ways, that leads to the dehumanization of people and worship of false idols and God's judgment falls upon peoples that do that and they are destroyed. They die. Spiritually, physically, whatever. God's judgment as a purpose of the conquest. It also could be a purpose of this conquest of Joshua as potentially God's judgment on Nephilim, giant offspring of supernatural beings, sons of God and women, and the daughters of men. So we could be seeing both of those things happening. The fall of man and all of his idolatry and the fall of supernatural beings and their own idolatry and turning from God. So we have two different things about the Canaanites that I want to really emphasize. 
there are there are practices that are idolatrous, and that there are this this other theme of the fact that they are fallen and that they are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men as a potential. But let's start with the first piece. What do the Canaanites do? What do the Canaanites do? What we learn about all these different peoples is that they do things, their practices are against God. And we saw that in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 19, you see that their practices are to worship false gods and to engage in idolatrous behavior. In 18, we see that God calls Israel not to do as they do, as these people do in the land of Canaan. That's Leviticus 18.3. He's saying, Israel, you're to follow me, you're to follow what I say, I am holy. You're not to do like these people are doing in Canaan. What are they doing? Chapter 18, verse 6 of Leviticus. They are uncovering the nakedness of relatives, incest. God calls that depravity. In chapter 18, verse 20, they are lying sexually with their neighbor's wife. They are committing adultery. That's uncleanliness. In 1821, they are sacrificing their children to Molech, a false god. They are giving human sacrifice of their own children to some things that the practices of the Canaanites are doing, which God says is profaning his name. In chapter 1822, the Canaanites lie with a man as with a woman. So homosexuality, which Leviticus 18.22 calls an abomination. 18.23, lying with animals, bestiality, which God calls a perversion. So again, all these really strong words about particular practices that the Canaanites are doing that God says, Israel, don't do. They're doing this. You are not to do this. Um, And this is what they are engaging in. And oftentimes, these various acts were in service to false gods whether it was the child sacrifice or it was actual sexual acts and prostitution and temples and fertility religions and engaging in these acts as if to um, satisfy the gods of the territories to give blessing. God says, do not do that. Do not practice that way. And what he says is, because they practice that way, I am going to drive them out of the land. The land is going to vomit them out. This is God's land. God God owns everything. You're going to engage continually in this false worship and these false gods and these various behaviors and actions. The land itself is going to vomit you out. You see that in Leviticus 19, verses 24 to 25. I know I'm kind of just throwing scriptures out, so I want to read a few of these as I go so you don't just think I'm pulling this out of my hat. Leviticus 19, 24 to 25. what happens when I write with a pencil. I write down the wrong thing. Let's see. Here we go. It's 18, 24 to 25. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. Again, the list I just gave. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean. So that I punished its iniquity. Iniquity of the Amorites. That I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants goes on, you shall keep my statutes and my rules. Do none of these abominations. goes on at the end, I am the Lord, your God. 
So we see that the Canaanites are driven out from the land as an act of God's judgment. He is holy. He is God. You are to follow in His ways or you will be removed. The land will vomit you out. But there's another piece that we learn here. It isn't because the Israelites are so great. Okay? So this isn't some ethnic, cleansing, genocidal kind of action. It's not because, oh, Israelites are the good guys. They're the pure race. No, they are not. God says in Deuteronomy 9, as we've been reading, not because of your righteousness are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. They're wicked. It's not because you're so good. It's because they're wicked, they're going to go. But even in Deuteronomy 9, after he says that, God, God just basically says, and what are you? You're stubborn. You're rebellious, you're rebellious all the time. So it's not that Israelites are the good guys and the Canaanites are the bad guys. No, it's that God is gracious. He chose the Israelites out of his love and out of his mercy. And that God has given them the gift of land, not because of things that they themselves have done. Just a wonderful passage to read as a, a reminder. This isn't some kind of superiority of their behavior and their actions before God. Deuteronomy 9. I encourage you to look at that as well. So, we have idolatry. We have the fact that it's not that Israel is just so great. Um, we have the fact that this is just... God, He's in charge. It's His love. It's His choice. It's His grace. It's His gift. Everybody is here because of the gift of God. That's why we live and breathe. But they began to follow false practices, um, the Canaanites, and God was going to vomit them out of the land and give the land to His promised people by His grace. So I hope we see a little bit that that when we move into the conquests, as, as in this next week or so, you read Joshua, this is God's judgment on sinful rebellion against him and upon the ways in which they dehumanized other people. They're offering their children. They're engaging in acts that are actually dehumanizing before people. And that it is potentially God's judgment on the Nephilim and the giant offspring. Because interestingly, when in Numbers... When God sends the spies to the land, they're afraid. Why are they afraid? They're afraid because there are fortified cities. There are these really strong cities out there with these really giant people. They're really big. It's a very familiar story, which I think um, Brad talked about last time. You find that in Numbers 13. In Numbers 13, verse 28, it gives some of the reasons of why they are afraid. So go there for a second. Let's see. Numbers 13. Your heading probably says something like around verse 25, the report of the spies. I'm going to jump in here. So the report comes back. The people who dwell in the land are strong. This is verse 28. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the Jordan. Caleb goes and quiets them. Let's go up. Let's occupy it. Then the men who had gone up against them said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. 
So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. We just read about the Nephilim. They're in Genesis 6. Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and the Anakim are mentioned in Joshua 11 as another reason of why they're going in the land to rid the land of the Nephilim. So why are they afraid? They're afraid because of these really strong cities. They're afraid because of these giants. And one of the reasons why I tend toward the view that these are actually offspring of supernatural beings is I don't think it's just that, oh, they're big and God doesn't like big people and they need to be judged and got out of the land. There's a whole lot more going on here than just that. There's clearly the idolatry and there is potentially this other issue of fallen offspring. And you will notice this as you, as you read with all these names. Anakim tied to Nephilim, sons of Anak tied to the same thing. You have Rephaim, which is mixed, which are also big. You have Amorites, which are very large. All this hearkening back to whatever in the world exactly happened in Genesis 6 and God's judgment upon them. And I think what we need to remember is either way, there, as Christians, we believe in a supernatural worldview. Our scientific mind goes, this just sounds ridiculous. But there is a world, an unseen world, that we can't imagine. And that is clearly there all through the Bible. So this is where we have to get out of our just kind of American scientific um, technological ways of thinking and enter into a whole different worldview that, that the people of Israel would have had. Um, so, why are they afraid? Fortified cities, giant warrior kings, Nephilim, sons of Anak. They need courage. They need to believe the promise that God said, this land is yours. I've made it from since from the very back of, of um, Abraham and Israel. I am going to judge the sins of the Amorites. I'm going to judge this fallen offspring. And I am going to um, bring you into the land so that you dwell. And so what we see as we go through Joshua is that there's a lot of hyperbole in Joshua because what's interesting is there's all, this, all these words of when he goes into these cities and they go and devote the entire cities to destruction, sometimes it's hyperbolic. In certain verses, it makes it sound like every single Anakim, every single um, giant, Nephilim, whatever, everything was destroyed. The idolatry, the um, child sacrifice, all that's going on is completely removed. And we also find out later, wait a second, but then there's still some left over here. And there's still some left over here. And oh yeah, but the Israel forgot to go drive those people out. And of course, in the book of Judges, a lot of them are still there. So there's a sense in which God does bring his people into rest. They take the land, but Israel, because of Again, continued unbelief kind of does it and kind of doesn't do it. And the story continues as we read through our scriptures and our Bible reading. Um, you see that North Canaan is attacked and basically removed and the people driven from the land and also in South Canaan. And then you see later that some are left. But overall, there's this sense that God has given his people rest. God has given his people rest 
from war. We see that in Joshua 11.23. And then, later in Joshua, he kind of starts to divide up the land and allot it to various tribes. And there's a sense that God's promises haven't failed. See, you're here. Every good thing that God has promised you is here for you. You can now rest. But be careful to obey what I have said. And as we learn, they're not. They're not careful to obey thoroughly every single thing that he has said. In Joshua 21, 43 to 45. Toward the end of the book. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. They're in the land. Again in 23, uh, verse 14, Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. In 24, 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Again, this is the grace of God. This is God fulfilling His promises. He's the one that fights for them. We see that in Jericho. It's not because they're great warriors. It's not because Israel is great and not stubborn and rebellious, just like a bunch of other nations. It's because God is a gracious God who has a people, who calls His people to believe His promise and by faith to act upon what He has said. So, we, too, are to be strong and courageous. Strong and courageous. But, there's a transition here. We are to be strong and courageous because we trust the one who came from the promise in Genesis that one would come and crush the serpent, one would come and crush Satan's head, And that all through the line of things like King David, there would be one who would come whose name is Jesus. Jesus is actually short for Yeshua, which is short for Joshua. That Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus is the one who gives his people rest. That all true rest is not found in idolatry. Rest is found in what Jesus Christ has done. That Jesus went into death Jesus died at the hands of the state, at the hands of religious institutions. And Jesus died to save. The way that he conquers is by taking on human flesh, the divine one. Taking on human flesh and being the champion, Hebrews 2 says. Some say captain. The forerunner, the one who goes before the one who destroys the giant powers, the supernatural powers that enslave Satan, sin, and death. And that Jesus does it by dying and by rising again. That He is the one who gives us eternal rest. In Hebrews, throughout Hebrews, there's this call to a future rest, a full rest, an entire Sabbath rest. And that Jesus is the one who has won that. 
And that we should not be like the generation that did not believe His promise. That we should be ones who, with courage, with faith, trust Jesus and turn from idolatries. Because idols enslave. Idols promise freedom. Idols promise a ton of rest. These things that the Canaanites did can promise certain amounts of rest. Certain sexual behaviors. That's going to give me rest. That's what I want to do. That's who I am. God says, no, you do what I called you to do. I will give you rest. Child sacrifice. Well, we're just going to give up our children. Um, We're going to give up our children to satisfy so we can have fertility in the land and to help other people. That's a false sense of rest. That's not what's going to give you rest. The only way that rest comes is through Jesus. And we have all kinds of different idolatries in our culture. And what God calls us to do is these things get turned on their head. There's not the sense in which we now rise up, take arms, get our swords and go get them. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus laid down the sword. He was killed by the sword, essentially. And then he rose to conquer. That's how Christians fight. We fight with weapons that are spiritual. We fight with self-sacrificial love. We fight with um, faith in what God has said that destroys supernatural powers. In 2 Corinthians 10, it talks about how we fight not of the flesh, but we tear down falsehoods. We tear down false ways of thinking. And we demolish them and make them obedient to Christ. So, we fight things like rest in self, the idolatry of rest in self, that I am my own authority. We fight this cultural pressure that's all around us. I am my own authority. I do what I want. What makes me feel good. What's best for my therapeutic self. And that's what the culture preaches and just bashes into us. That's how I'm going to find rest. Well, clearly, in our culture, we're not finding rest that way. We're just increasing new and different ways to try to figure out how to get this rest and this sense of life and wholeness that we long for. Rest in sex. Sex is good. It's God's gifts, just like self is a gift. It's us. Sex on my own terms. What I want. Adultery, pornography, homosexuality. Go down the list. Create new ones. God says no. It's the way that I gave it. You're going to find rest in that and then you're only ultimately going to find rest in me. Rest in money. Hey, it's money on my terms. I'm the owner of my money. It's not for the poor. All my sense of security, this is what I earned. It's a good capitalist society. Get bigger and better. And God says, no, your ultimate rest is not going to be found in there. It's going to be found also by giving. Rest in politics. That I'll finally get rest. We'll finally get utopia whether on the right or on the left in different ways, we're finally going to get it if it's just this person gets elected. No, it's not going to come that way. That's not how rest will come. And our allegiance is not to nation and state. Nationalism can be a false sense of rest and security. When God says we are not, it's not like that anymore. My people are now not identified by a nature, by, by a nation in a strip of land. My people are composed of every tribe and every single nation who confess that Jesus is king. And that's where the allegiance is. So we don't find rest in politics among nations, no matter what nation, including our own. 
we find rest in King Jesus. Or we pursue rest in power. Power again is God's gift. Authority is God's gift. But we rest in power not by oppressing, not by abusing, not by domination. The gift of power is given to be servant-like, to be gentle, to be sacrificial. So, you kind of go on on that. But God is calling us against the idols of the day and to find our rest in King Jesus, who has destroyed the powers of Satan, sin, and death. The Jesus, the new Joshua, is the place of rest because he has defeated the great enemies, the giant powers of Satan, sin, and death. So, let's find our rest in him. That's where it comes from. Hebrews 2, 3, 4, pretty much the whole book. Let's trust Him. Let's turn away from unbelief and let's trust Jesus. And one last thing. What was, I thought, thought was really cool. Right before Joshua, or excuse me, right before the Israelites go and do this, um, God uh, talks about Joshua here in Genesis chapter 1, tells us to be strong and courageous, follow Him, have success, go get Him, boys. And then, right before they go into Jericho, they engage in what God has told them to engage in. They circumcise, because people hadn't been circumcised in a while. That's another story. Um, Then they engage in the Passover. And then they go fight. So before we fight, we remember. That's what we do as God's people. We remember what God has done. They sit there remembering, oh wait, we didn't win all this. God's promising us to go do, God's telling us to go do something. We need to step back now and we need to remember what he has done through the Passover. Through their deliverance from Egypt and how God destroyed the false gods of Egypt and the nation and delivered his people out of it. And so, they needed to step back, remember who they were. We're God's people. This is our identity. These are the rituals that we do, the practices that we do. And then we go fight. Because it's always about God's gift is always first. Grace is always first. What he has done is always first. And then we go do what he calls us to do. And so before we fight, we remember. And then I would say as we fight, we remember. As we fight in this world, we don't fight with weapons like the world fights. We fight the way that Jesus calls us to fight. Through sacrificial love and obedience to his commandments. So, as we take communion, we are to remember who we are as God's people. We are to ask God to give us courage and faith to trust that all of our rest that we look for right when we leave this building and even right now is found in His body and His blood and in what Jesus has done for us. And that He has spoken to us and that it's going to take courage to believe it. And that doesn't come from just working it up really hard, but it just comes from looking at what he does, purely receiving it as gift and trusting him and to fight the way that he fights with sacrificial love. So let's remember together and let's sing and then let's remember.
Alrighty. So if you didn't, hopefully you did. But they were sitting right on the counter. If anybody needs to run and grab one, that's okay. So we're going to remember Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen.